Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the Big Screen Book Club, the podcast that celebrates the loving relationship between literature and film and seeks to answer the biggest question of them all. Was the book really better? I'm Joseph Keim. And I'm Clarice Lockery. This month, we'll be covering the American classic and picture of the jazz age, F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, and its eclectic film adaptation by Baz Luhrmann. But before we get around to its big screen bonanza, let's touch on the original novel. Though its launch didn't bring about much fiscal success and many literary critics thought it to be the end of Fitzgerald's illustrious career, The Great Gatsby has become a cultural phenomenon and considered by many as the ultimate American novel. Set during Prohibition-era Long Island in 1922, the story follows Nick Carraway, a bond salesman who grows obsessed with the lies of his cousin Daisy, her slimy husband Tom Buchanan, and a mysterious neighbor who lives in a grand house and throws extravagant parties. Wonder who that guy is. <laughs> the story unfolds to reveal a complex love story that puts relationships and even lives on the line in a cynical reflection of the American dream. The book is an all-time classic that put Fitzgerald on the map for many, and Baz Luhrmann's film is an extravagant and eclectic retelling of its story. But first off, Clarice, how did you find reading the book? I I mean, this is maybe the third time I've read The Great Gatsby. Like, I know it's mm. an obvious one. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that Fitzgerald was an absolute shit to Zelda. Mm. <laughs> and I wanted to say that on the top. Yeah, he's, he's not. He wasn't, wasn't the best fella. But his writing, the stuff that he didn't plagiarize from her, <laughs> which maybe he plagiarized everything, I don't know, but the book is very beautiful. It's a very beautiful book. I just have always really loved the prose. And I don't know, can I share my, my thoughts about the movie very early on? Because I feel like they're important when sharing Please, my yeah. thoughts about. <laughs> I think that there's really not that much difference between Fitzgerald and Lerman. Because I think there is something very fantastical and kind of florid about the book, and that's why I like it. Mm. <laughs> it's sort of... It is kind of excessively romantic, but it, it because it's so much through Nick Carraway's vision, and Nick Carraway is so madly in love with Jay Gatsby, we could get onto that later, mm. <laughs> that, you know, all of that prose makes sense. And also, like, Fitzgerald, I think, often kind of wrote in an allegorical style. I mean, another story of his that I like uh, called uh, The Diamond As Big As The Ritz is literally about a diamond that's as big as a mountain. <laughs> like he, he, was, he was not a subtle guy. No. <laughs> and so like I, this is the thing I've always defended this adaptation as being very true to, to the spirit of who like I think Fitzgerald was as a writer. Maybe I'm wrong. Like I should say, you know, early on in this podcast, I am no literary expert. <laughs> <laughs> I I've read a lot of the books. I, I haven't read a lot of the like academic writing around Fitzgerald's. Uh, so maybe I'm an idiot and I don't know what I'm talking about, but <laughs> that's my takeaway of Fitzgerald. No, I mean, I get what you mean. The The connection of the incredible glitz and glamour of the era comes through in in both. And I think Lerman, naturally being Lerman, making the films he's already made, he was the perfect director to pick it up and really accentuate how massive and melodramatic the story ends up being. And to blend the era with the music of the time, which had no right working as well as it did, it's a really impressive way of reading the book. And it's it's no surprise to me that even though the film turns out to be two and a half hours long and the book is actually quite short, it's no surprise <laughs> that th the whole book is practically there. I don't feel like anything is missed except for a little bit at the end, which explains who Gatsby truly was. But I feel like that came across in the rest of the film and it makes perfect sense that there was nothing that was left on the cutting room, even though there must have been a hell of a lot of coke in the cutting room, considering how frantic the editing of this film is. But it's so <laughs> it's so brilliantly put together in that nothing is missed, and they really do go hand in hand. And I think you could get the whole story just from watching the film, and that you wouldn't miss much from the book, except from the really gorgeous way that it's all written. Yeah, and it's interesting you talk about stuff being cut, 
I'm I'm guessing you're mentioning at the end you're talking about the dad, Gatsby's dad, mm. Mr. Gats, turning up at the end. They did actually shoot that and uh, just ended up cutting it because I think that was the right decision because I don't think that character is necessary, really. I think he could have been cut from the book, to be honest, not to criticise Fitzgerald. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it... It makes sense, especially in the film as it's presented through Nick Carraway's eyes. Is you can you can very clearly see him, and he has more of a character in the film, I'd say, than he does in the book because he's a lot easier to project onto when reading. But it it accentuates Gatsby as an extension of Nick's dreams and obsession, and less of a man. By the time that he's dead, it it heralds the end of an era for Nick. I think if his dad showed up at the end to mourn him, it would make him more of a real figure, whereas he exists best as a very fantastical representation of the rich of the era. Which I think is also true in the book. I think what's really stark about the source and the the adaptation is like... Because the book is all written by Nick Carraway in quotation marks, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so it's easy for us reading, I think, you know, you kind of forget that, you know, he's a a biased narrator, an unreliable narrator. Mm. And that actually, you know, the way that he describes Gatsby and Daisy in the book, it's not who those people actually are. It's how... He sees them, right? And he and he so like excessively romanticizes Gatsby. Yeah. <laughs> where it's like well, I just love that there's a bit where he's talking about he sees everything with the heightened sensitivity to the promises of life as if he related to one of those intricate machines that register earthquakes ten miles away. Like <laughs> this dude is in love with Gatsby. Like that has always been my reading of he's so absolutely fallen under his spell. Mm. And and yeah, maybe in the novel you do need the dad to come along to break that spell a little bit and to remind us as a reader that like the Gatsby described in the book is not it's not the real guy. It's yeah. what Nick projected onto him. Mm. And it makes perfect sense as a lot of the readings that come to the Great Gatsby as a novel always point out that Nick is almost the definition of the unreliable narrator. Because there's there's so many like inconsistencies throughout the book. Whether that was a a misstep by Fitzgerald or it was all entirely purposeful, there are moments where Nick, for instance, mentions that that afternoon in in Tom's flat, he mentions that he was drunk only twice in his life, and that was one of them. But he honestly he spends most of the book and most of the film drinking, so it's it's very easy to to read Caraway as just a complete idealist who wants to present himself as the most perfect figure because obviously he's writing the book himself he wants himself to seem like a neutral figure or at least one who was doing the right thing throughout the book there's very few moments where you can you can look to nick as a bad guy because everything that unfolds is of course the result of something else or somebody else he can't possibly you know he can't be in the wrong because he exists on the outside of their lives when in reality he's so aggressively obsessed with other people's lives that the rest of his life just dissipates well he is as he writes within and without right yeah (laughs) yeah i mean he thinks so (laughs) yeah i mean i have a question for you Mm -hmm. this is always fascinates me about this book do you like any of the characters oh see because i read this book for the first time during my a-levels and obviously assessing and reassessing the book sort of takes away some of the magic. But by the time yes. I'd finished it at A-levels, I couldn't say I liked any of the characters. That's come around now as I I can see a few characters as victims. I'd say Daisy is quite a victim in the story, both of Gatsby and of Tom. Um but most of the characters are inherently unlikable. It's very immediate how much you dislike Tom, not only because he's incredibly arrogant and brash 
and just a frustrating presence. But in the first chapter, he goes on a huge racist tirade that it's yes. so <laughs> it's so difficult to dissect from his character for the rest of it. And obviously, he serves as a technical antagonist because Nick roots for Gatsby, and thus the book wants you to root for Gatsby and his affair with Daisy. But you, it's so hard to root for a lot of them because they're all victims of their own ego and their idea of what the American dream is and how they've come to attain it. Nick, obviously, he's the good guy, but the fact that he's, you know, he's such an unreliable narrator, you can't really put 100% truth to anything that he says. So naturally, you become disconnected from him and then you become disconnected from the story without him. But I think... I really love Jordan Baker as a character because she's one of the few true individuals of the story as everybody else relies on each other and has a connection with each other that you that can't just be broken. Um, and they all sort of fall into the trap of needing each other to exist with or without Daisy and Tom especially. But I, I like... Jordan and I have sympathy for Daisy but the rest of them I struggle Mm -hmm. to like see I disagree with I have very different take on the characters see this is what I find interesting okay I I despise Daisy oh and I think my one criticism of the film well no I have two my two big criticisms of the film um, well, first off, I don't know if you get out of the way, the sanitarium stuff is just a bit much. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit too, like, we did not need that, right? Did you, I don't know, did you like the sanitarium edition? I mean, I'm not entirely sure. I'm sort of on the fence with it. There's, with additions and omissions with the book, it's sort of, I feel like they balance each other out enough. What was it about that you didn't particularly like? It, I understand that we want we needed to establish him as the narrator, and mm. I like that. I think the idea that he, I don't know, that he becomes an alcoholic at the end, and it's it's it feels a little a little too literal, which I know is very much Baz Luhrmann's style is like mm. <laughs> make everything literal, you know, pump everything up. So of <laughs> course he has the same fate as Ian McGregor in Moulin Rouge, right? It's the same <laughs> beginning, same beginning of the movie, because uh, he's also bearded and sad and an alcoholic at the beginning of Moulin Rouge. Mm. Like, it's a, it's a smallish thing. Like, I, I wish maybe they just started it with him writing his recollections as opposed to being like, he was driven mad by the jazz age. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not quite that in the other book. He's more just like, you know, tired of it by the end. Yeah. I mean, it, it ties in, like you said, to how very literal Lerman takes his text. Um, because the whole, I feel like the whole point of the book is to reflect a very cynical reading of the American dream and what the jazz age did to that. And it's, it is a very literal way of making the American dream a complete nightmare because everybody who has attached it, attached themselves to it has destroyed Nick's life entirely to a point where he does need to seek professional help and writing the book is his only solace from it. It is incredibly literal, which is something I think I'm not entirely sure I find trouble with it or not in the film um especially at the one point where wilson directly points at the eyes on the ad and directly states that they are the eyes of god <laughs> but he when... does that in the book though I, I, in but... the book it's very clear that the eyes are god and this is again with pitch Darrell, like he's not a subtle dude <laughs> okay maybe it was me remembering reading it and thinking that i had come up with that idea all by myself <laughs> like yeah, I don't know if he points to the sign, but I think the sign is like so like violently alluded to as being the eyes of God. <laughs> mm. It's just I find it interesting that addition of that sign as well because it struck me sort of near the end of reading the book that its position in the poorer area of the city sort of offered the rich characters an omission of sin because they were so wealthy. Yeah, and so this actually, so this is my, I should say that I absolutely 
adore the film. Mm. <laughs> and my criticism are very minor, like this slightly changes the meaning of the book in a film that I think otherwise is such a close it so gets the the spirit of it. It so gets like what Fitzgerald was trying to do. Yeah. But my other very slight criticism is I think the movie takes a little too much blame off Daisy and shifts it to Gatsby because I have always sympathized the most with Gatsby because I think he's just a fool. I think everybody else is is more malicious and what they change in the movie is that you know when she goes to his party for the first that that one party that she goes to mm. in the book she doesn't like the party in a way that implies to me that she found she finds the new money like garish like she's kind of disgusted by the ostentatiousness of all this this new money and mm-hmm. it's trashy and all these upstarts while in the movie it's she wants to run away with him and it's more like a romantic thing yeah and he gets angry because she doesn't want to stay and it's more kind of on him when to me like the beginning of daisy sort of changing her mind about gatsby happens at that party when she's reminded that this guy is is not of her class, you know, he's, yeah. he's different to her. He's he's a fake, and and I think her doubts start to grow and grow and grow, so that when she when she has to admit when when Gatsby is telling her to tell Tom that she never loved him, she can't do it because mm. she doesn't want to tie herself to this guy who's like lesser than her and so i really hate daisy because that's so like disgusting to me and i really think that daisy and tom deserve each other and i think you know (laughs) like tom is a a fucking gross guy and a Mm. giant racist but he grows more sympathetic by the end of the book because you see that he i think he genuinely did love myrtle and he's so heartbroken over her death like he grows softer as Daisy grows harder. So by, by the end, I think they're on the same level. And the movie doesn't really do that. She changes her mind more when Gatsby like goes to punch him, right? Yeah. And she sees like the violence and she's very put off by that. And it's like, mm, I don't know if that's really what the book does. I don't think the book is that kind to her. I don't know. I hate that woman. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd never considered it that way, but I, I kind of get what you mean. Because when, when I was reading it, I always saw Daisy as a character who would often go where the class and the money was. That's sort of how I depicted it, or the way I, I dis, like dissected it in my head. But it's interesting to see that there's something else there. I mean, I always thought of Tom as a harder character, and I, I didn't entirely feel that he was telling the truth all the time when he mentions that he does love Daisy. I always saw his his my, his little spree speech um as his way of damage control and there was there was few moments where I felt there was a genuine connection there and when I didn't feel like he was entirely just an antagonist. But it's it's interesting to put that all together see there's so much in this book that can be put together in different ways and i think it's interesting that the book being named after gatsby as a character can have so many readings that put gatsby on the firing line and a lot of readers often hate gatsby himself yeah but that's that's what i find interesting i've always found him the most sympathetic character because like he's just he like his only mistake is that he he held on to a dream for too long Mm. well i think everybody else is just kind of corrupted like even nick i don't really like nick very much (laughs) (laughs) because he's just like he's just so like in love with gatsby that he's not fucking paying attention to anything going on and i like that in the movie he has an actual moment of doubt about should i introduce this 
man to my cousin who is married. Like, that's a bad idea, you know? Mm. Like, he's kind of at fault for everything because <laughs> he should not have set up that D. And Jordan is also guilty of this. But they both kind of do it because... And this is why I don't also don't like Jordan very much, is that... Like, obviously, as portrayed by Elizabeth Debicki, absolutely fabulous, lovely, like, goddess, you know. <laughs> but morally, she keeps dipping her toes into this scandal because she kind of finds it fascinating. And I don't think she really likes any of these people. She's just kind of interested in it. And I've always been struck by the fact that she doesn't turn up for Gatsby's funeral. Like, no. she was there for all of this. And then she just bounces the second that he dies. And... And so I think, like, just I just kind of think everybody's trash. <laughs> <laughs> but Ga and Gatsby's just like a silly baby, you know. <laughs> That's my reading of the Great Gatsby. No, but I mean, it it makes sense. I mean, any of the rich characters in this book are never po really portrayed as complete saints. I think that's an important part in that ties into the sort of sad reflection of the American dream is that often nobody wins when competing in capitalism even if it's on a on a very personal level or on a level that's you know incredibly close to heart and away from the actual richities but it's yeah I have I agree I mean there's not everybody has their redeeming qualities I think but bar Tom but it's it's easy to dislike most of the characters. It's often where it's basically just taking sides, really, in who is the victim and who are the real perpetrators in the book. Yeah, and I one thing I I like that the movie kind of does that adds to the book is that obviously, Tom has that horrific speech about white supremacy, like mm. you know, he just fully comes out as a white supremacist. And I like that the movie very kind of subtly picks that up in the way it represents New York City as a place of like opportunity. And when they when Baz Luhrmann kind of represents the world of the new money, if you mm. notice, it's like, you know, it's not all white people like that's the actual place where there's this <laughs> some like scrap of diversity in the movie. And so you see how like that world is such a threat to to Daisy and Tom's world which is, you know, very, very white, except for the the people who work in the house, you know. Yeah. I think it's very subtle, but quite, like, visually stark reminder of, like, the racial dynamics, dynamics of the era and what, what Tom is actually talking about when he goes on this giant racist rant. It's because, like, the idea of the American dream is a threat to him because it might actually give people equal opportunities, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't right. mean that he can hold on to his old money. Yeah. He he exists as a reflection of the time and his his attitudes sort of reflect the, the idea of everybody in the novel just clinging to the past like it's the only thing that they've got. Gatsby in his relationship to Daisy and Tom in his grim terrible ideals and nick just being like <laughs> i feel like he's still like the kid at college yeah like, trotting around following the the cool guys mm. in his um society yeah he doesn't get much of a character and it it's used as a as a point actually after after the big kerfuffle in in the apartment on the hottest day of the summer <laughs> when he realizes that that day was his birthday and when I first read it, I thought it was incredibly throwaway and a little bit silly. But now reflecting on it, it's like, Jesus Christ, this man has lost his entire being to the affairs of these rich people who really he doesn't have much in common with. Yeah, and it's it's like, it's kind of the same seductiveness, I think, that pulls in Gatsby, right? Because Gatsby was also not himself anymore. He's kind of lost his identity because he was Gats. He's not Gatsby. Mm. And it's like everyone's kind of throwing themselves away. And and like there's a bit in the book with the library where the, the man in the library at the party is talking about his surprise that all the books are real books. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, wow. It's like really elaborate set making here because there's an assumption that that everything about Gatsby is just an illusion. It's all fake. And 
And I guess, I guess what you're left with as a reader is trying to figure out what about Gatsby is truth and what is just uh, what is the platonic ideal that he's created for himself. Uh, and it, it's kind of hard. I don't think there is a concrete answer. I think there's like a million different readings of of how how fake is this dude? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of all of that stuff. It's all entirely by design because Gatsby almost, you know, he he just throws his entire life away, um, becomes an entirely new man in the pursuit of wealth because that's what he thinks was keeping Daisy from him, and his connection to that and his unwillingness to let go turns him into something you can I don't know you can hardly really call a person everything about his his being exists as like in this mysticism of this man who throws incredible parties and sort of gives back to the people who nobody actually knows or really cares about as in the end he doesn't really have much even at his funeral when nobody shows up except his dad who he hardly spoke to it's it's telling that he's you know he's he's an illusion yeah and i wondered what i guess we should talk about the way that baz Luhrmann represents like the parties oh my goodness <laughs> yes we should <laughs> what what's your take on like how he shoots them the the use of the modern music and everything like that Honestly, I was so surprised that the music worked in the way it did. The soundtrack is phenomenal in this film, and I think it's the blend of modernity and the old ways that I think made this film really attractive to modern-of-the-time audiences. But the, the party scenes are, for many, like what the film exists for. That first party where you first see the house and the extravagance and the dancing and all of it, it's... It's Lerman all over. It's the rest of the film has a lot of melodrama, but here it's just riotous chaos in the most blissful way. Yeah, and I've really I've I've never really gelled with like criticisms of Baz Lerman using like modern shit in his period mm. movies. Because you know, I think when you're watching like a traditional period film, you're always having to fight against this sense of like nostalgia. Yeah. <laughs> of having to go, hmm, the way it was back then. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think I don't know, there's a there's a tendency to like overly almost overly aesthetic, like aestheticize period movies because you're just like, oh my God, it looks so much like an old painting. It looks so much like, you know, these these things that have, these material things of that period that have been passed through to us, like paintings and, and you know, if we're talking 20s, maybe like bits of film or, or mm. you know, and, and, and I think, look, I don't want every period film to be a modern update. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the fact that Lerman does it is really exciting to me because it reminds you of like the newness of the jazz age of how like like fucking cool and exciting mm. it was to be alive at that time and you know we can say intellectually yes we understand that but I think having it hit you on such a base level because it really like it takes everything that you're super familiar with and drops you right in the middle of it, and I think that's true of of this and Moulin Rouge and Romeo and Juliet. It's so like takes you and drops you in it, yeah. <laughs> that you just can't like you can't not relate to it. You can't feel like you're alive within it. If that makes sense. Yeah. No, I completely agree. It's it's such an easy way of tethering the audience to the film because obviously. A lot of it looks similar. We've seen like the remnants of this age, even in films that were made sort of close to the time. Some of the earliest films, you can see it peeking through in real time. But the modern music is a very simple way of bringing people into a world that looks very recognisable. But there was actually a hell of a lot of difference because, because of the racial tensions of the time. And even when you consider prohibition in itself, the fact that alcohol was illegal it's probably you know it's something that's quite hard to visualize or comprehend especially i guess in britain where drinking culture is all over the shop 
it's a really interesting way of tying in uh, to a world that that looks similar, but it's quite hard to connect to in any other way. Yeah, and and also like, I think it's good at reminding you that this was a post-war period, mm. and like, you know, I, I I know that everyone's talking about now, like we're entering the new Roaring Twenties because post-pandemic, everyone's just gonna be like fucking and dancing and drinking yeah. <laughs> all the time, and. And, like, I think this movie, like, does a good job of sort of imagining what that might be like. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> of I, having that energy. Because everyone's so, like, hysterical in this movie. And, and you feel like, well, that's because they've been through this incredibly historically traumatic period. And everyone's now just like, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I never considered The Great Gatsby as a reading of what life will be like post-pandemic but I'm really glad we found that in it. <laughs> I think it will be. Like, I'm drinking a cocktail from a little champagne glass right now. Oh, no, see, I'm on the chamomile. I wish I'd known we were doing cocktails. <laughs> well, I just I just thought it would be appropriate and I was dying to have a cocktail, so no, quite <laughs> I made right. myself one. <laughs> I'll allow you that. Um, we actually, we got some questions from the listeners that I quite like to pick up on because I think there's a lot of interesting ideas. Thank you for sending in your questions. Um, if you have a question about our next book, next time we come to record, please give us a shout over on Twitter or Instagram at BSBookPod and we'll try to answer your question on the pod. Um, the first one I've got is from Ian Gibson, who says, This is a book that I read 30-plus years ago, but it left an indelible impression. One of the things that remained with me was the richness of the prose, something Lerman in part tries to evoke through the narration. Is this cheating when it comes to literary adaptations? I would say, I don't know if you agree, I would say no, because I think, you know, we were discussing how... um, how so much of the characters are filtered through Nick Carraway's like romantic romanticism about the jazz age. Like I I don't think you can do that without a narrator. Because the film has to feel subjective. Otherwise it misunderstands what Fitzgerald was doing. Yeah. I mean, I think to any degree, when you use narration, obviously it's a very easy storytelling tool. But to any degree you're still adapting a novel and you're still taking words from that book and then putting them in your screenplay. So to a certain degree, there's there's always going to be that. You've got that baseline already there and you're just working off it. I don't think adding them to direct speech changes that much. While, of course, it's, you know, it's very deliberate and often narration can be quite heavy-handed and a, a bit of a fallback. I don't feel like Lerman does that and because the prose is so gorgeous and every single word is so deliberate I think he'd be a fool not to use any of it because a lot of what The Great Gatsby as a novel evokes is through Fitzgerald's voice also look we know Lerman loves a little bit of narration (laughs) come on the woman I love of course is dead (laughs) (laughs) he's too good at it i'd be annoyed if he didn't (laughs) if only moulin rouge had a book that it was adapted from it's adapted from a book it's not is it (laughs) (laughs) we've got another one from gil who asks how do you feel about daisy skipping town with tom and not going to gatsby's funeral so what exactly do you think that evokes in the novel how does that leave their characters I mean, this goes back to me thinking she's a complete asshole. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's indefensible. To be fair, it's it's not something you can you can read and think, okay, she ended this story, the good guy. And I think it is. I I just very sincerely believe that she and Tom deserve each other. Like they're vapid, nasty people, yeah. and they're gonna just go have a miserable life together with their child that they keep forgetting exists. Oh my god! It's such a shock whenever that child shows up. You forget <laughs> so easily that they're parents. In the movie, it's so funny because the kid only turns up at the very end. <laughs> You're like, oh shit, small child. Oh, I think she's three years old. How have we not seen her before? It's touched on more in the novel because there's a there's a very vast disconnect between Daisy and her own daughter. 
but it's which sort of plays into her vapidness but the fact that she only shows up at the end of the film it's like <laughs> come on surely her being a mother would be a bigger part of this story I feel like it has the same effect, though, because in the book, like, that scene is disgusting because they, like, the nurse comes in and, like, parades the child around and Daisy goes, oh, look at my daughter, she's so cute. Oh, golden-haired child, looks so much like me. (laughs) Jesus Christ. You know, like, it's the same. It doesn't make her seem like any more of a mother. Like, she does not give a shit about that kid. (laughs) No, I I feel like the child exists purely for her ego. And look, whatever, it was the product of a loveless marriage, but <laughs> I have some sympathy for her complicated feelings towards the daughter, but also, like, that daughter is going to need a lot of therapy when she grows up. Yeah, but the, the trouble is, I feel like at the end, even though Daisy is a total dick, um, I feel like she gets the worse end of the stick than Tom does, because I think... I struggle to... Oh, because I, like I said, I struggle to put together the fact that Tom does sincerely care about Daisy because he always goes off in his, quote, sprees. And you know that's never going to stop and he's going to keep going and it's going to put keep putting Daisy in turmoil. But I don't feel like it's going to emotionally affect him that he's losing an emotional connection because I never really felt like he had any that meant enough to his character to stop having sprees in the first place. No, and I feel like I just realized we didn't. I feel like we should talk about the casting. Briefly. Oh, how have we missed the casting? Oh my god! <laughs> Every single role so perfect. This is the thing about I think this is such a magic ingredient of the movies that everybody is perfectly cast, and I really feel like Joel Edgerton is an unappreciated ingredient oh. in this because. I will say, when I first watched the movie, his character was the one where I was like, holy shit, that is literally what I imagined in my head. Mm. When Before I knew of the existence of Joel Edgerton, (laughs) (laughs) that was the man that I saw in my head. And, And I think what is so good about his performance is that he is such a... He is so, like, ugly in the soul. Like, mm. handsome in the face, but ugly in the soul. But, like, he he is just human enough that I think it does leave you questioning, like, who does he love? Because when you see him react to Myrtle's death, like, I'm, I'm always left wondering, like, I think he did really care for her. Like, really cared for her. And I think, like, something broke inside of him when Myrtle died. And like, you know, whatever, we don't, <laughs> he is a fucking asshole, so from don't really have to have that much sympathy for that. But <laughs> like, I think that's, that's so key to, to where they at, are at the end of the novel, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I, I think you're right in that there was very clearly a connection. In, in, in my first readings, it always felt like, because it was, it's very explicitly stated when he first sees Myrtle in the window when they're on the way into town that he felt like both his mistress and his wife were slipping away so quick. And I felt like it was another ingredient in his grief of losing. But I do think there sincerely was something between him and Myrtle, no matter how morally bankrupt their relationship was in the way that it panned out. But it is, it's very clear that there was something there. And I have to say, even Myrtle had incredible casting isla fisher in that role was just perfect yes and like also casting leonardo dicaprio at gatsby as gatsby like it seems obvious but it's also totally ingenious yeah just for that moment when you don't see him for a very you know he only appears in the book in the third chapter you don't see him for a significant part of the movie for that shot of oh that's the one the fireworks the one for and the i gift. think it's that that boom instant like because leonardo dicaprio's like screen presence i feel like it's so like there's something so sincere about it and so like sparkling and charming about him on screen that like boom instantly you're like okay Gatsby I get it like I get why Nick Carraway is so obsessed with him because it's like the Leonardo DiCaprio effect and I think like 
Tarantino used that as well in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm. You know, that feeling of boom, like instant movie star, charismatic, but a little bit mysterious, but also very sincere. Like, it's all like that. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the true mysticism of Gatsby was just made it so perfect that Leo had that role. He's so effortlessly charming and there's always something that's just you know that you don't know about him and I think in many ways that's what the very existence of Gatsby at least in those first few chapters exists for yeah and I also like I I think he really gets all the sort of like fluctuating levels of Gatsby because that scene where he he first meets Daisy Mm. And like him, like nervously, like pattering around, like da 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 da, and, and when he's slicking, he's constantly slicking his hair back and trying to look good, and and just that shot of, you know, when he runs out of the house and he comes back to knock on the door, yeah, and the shot when he opens the door, like that look on his face is like, oh, wow, <laughs> yeah, you you really get the sense that he's facing his greatest fear and. It's just Leo. He is a very good actor, and that is that is my comment on Leonardo DiCaprio as Gatsby. He is good. <laughs> and yeah, and also we just just I just because I feel like we need to shout everybody out. <laughs> yeah, rattle <laughs> through Mulligan. him. Oh, I, I adore Carrie Mulligan with my entire being, and she's so good as Daisy. Like she gets the the vacuousness as well. Really, like. Again, that fluctuating thing of like she seems really sincere and romantic, but also vacuous at the same time. And you're like constantly trying to figure out what mood she's in in any single moment. Mm, you feel like she's living in her own little bubble. And when Gatsby insists that she tells Tom that she never loved him, it's very clear that that immediately bursts and it completely ruins what she thinks she can have. And it's so well performed. So good. So good. Also, Toby Maguire, just great at, like, <laughs> the total, like, dopey. Yeah. Hate <laughs> <laughs> Caraway. Just being like, uh, <laughs> these people are so cool. <laughs> well. <laughs> Toby Maguire is very good at playing adult. I agree. <laughs> He's great. And Elizabeth Debicki. Mm. Tall, tall goddess, tall icon. Tall Love woman, her. very good. <laughs> we got another question from Gil actually while we while we're slightly on the topic of Gatsby as a character and his mysticism. They ask yes. what we think about Gatsby taking the blame for Daisy killing Myrtle is he a sap or is he a hero? Uh mm, how do we think he, he's I would use either word. I would I think it's very tragic. Mm. Because again, this is why this is why I do have a lot of sympathy for him because he's so lost at that point. Because like, this is the thing. It's it's he's not so much in love with Daisy. He's like in love with the dream life that he created around Daisy, right? Yeah. And so the whole way through that like back end of the novel slash film it's just him like so desperately trying to hold on to that future that he created where you know daisy tells tom that she doesn't love him they divorce daisy and gatsby go back to louisville and then they get married and then they go live in his big house like that <laughs> is his plan he will no not deviate from it <laughs> yeah because that is the life that he created for himself and so, yeah, he's he's willing to take the blame because that makes it more likely that he can still live that life because, like, he can, like, you know, he's got favours with the police commissioner. He can probably <laughs> pay them off, right? Yeah, he could probably like, wrangle it. <laughs> he's probably not going to jail in this situation in which he still lives, so. Mm. I mean, yeah, I, I believe that he would do anything for Daisy, whether that's genuinely for her or to live out the life that he had planned but i trust that it was all very sincere and he wasn't doing it to be a hero or any of that i think it's all very real and his feelings for or at least he feels like his feelings for daisy are real and that's enough to make it worthwhile for him 
True, but although I think what the movie does quite well is like, you know when he gets annoyed at her because she doesn't want to, she wants to run away. Yeah. Like, isn't that so interesting? (laughs) 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 Yeah, I think, yeah, I think I'm with you on that in that it's all about this world that he built because obviously he throws his entire life away to become Jay Gatsby and to become the impressive man to impress Daisy but eventually he becomes so lost in it that all that matters is that he had because obviously five years is a long time to stew on something like that especially after not speaking to that person and not truly understanding who they are anymore as they go through so many changes especially as she marries Tom that's quite a hefty change to make as it's very heavily implied that she doesn't actually want to um but it's yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that's an that's an interesting take on Gatsby's obsession with the American dream over over Daisy. Yeah, he's a simp. <laughs> he is. I, I didn't want to say the word, but now it's he's out in the a, open. It's a simp. He's a simp for the American dream. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, we've got one from Lewis Knight who asks: Is Jordan Baker that bish? And why did Nick in both the book and the film do her so dirty? Discuss. Look again, Elizabeth Debicki, goddess, icon. (laughs) (laughs) We love her. Um, I I think Jordan got exactly what she deserved. (laughs) Oh, sorry, Lewis. Sorry. Well, this is the thing. Again, at the end, a woman has died. And... That's quite emotionally traumatic. Yeah. And Jordan's like, come on, Nick, let's just go have some dindins. <laughs> <laughs> and Nick, I think, is quite rightly like, what the fuck? No, I want to go home. Oh. I just experienced something really traumatic and you did too. Like, Jordan should... Why did, why did Jordan stick around? <laughs> right? I have, I have to circle back on dindins because that's brilliant. <laughs> That's it. That's it. that's sucked straight from the book. That's verbatim. <laughs> Let's have some dindins, Nick. Come on. <laughs> but Play yeah, around golf after. <laughs> I agree. She's you know, I think her existence in the book and all of the things that she does and the things that she experiences they're all a result of her morbid curiosity more than it is her sincere concern. Um, because obviously she's an incredibly powerful presence and. She's very, she's very attractive and she's very mysterious. And it's very clear that she's, even at the party, she's a great presence. She's someone you want to hang out with, but she's not someone who wants to hang out with you. <laughs> so that's probably what takes her down. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's an asshole, but she's like the fun asshole of the story. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like that thing in Parks and Recreation when have you seen it where April makes that meets that awful woman <laughs> and and she's like she's the worst woman I've ever met I want to travel the world with her that's how I feel about Jordan <laughs> that's it yeah <laughs> I I just really love this book and this movie so it's honestly it's so good I mean coming back to it was was really nice because it gave me a chance to reassess everything especially as you know with this with the school curriculum uh, we weren't really delving very heavily into the racist side of it because there's there's a lot more at play and there are other books that you touch on to address american racism in the british school bracket but it's it's nice to come back to it and reassess in fact most of them are assholes but i love to read them be assholes yeah and and i don't know my i'm very like protective of the movie because <laughs> mm. i it gets a lot of flack and then I, I often feel like i feel like a lot of the criticisms of the film are just essentially criticisms of the book <laughs> yeah there's, it's so hard to disconnect the two that i really get that yeah it's like all, all the the sort of loudness of it and all going it's too fast and it's too garish and it's too like f- f- um it's too like gaudy and you're like yeah but the book's kind of gaudy yeah like this dude lived in the jazz age 
he was a rich guy in the jazz age. What do you think his taste was like? (laughs) You can tell from the prose that it's written and spoken as a man who loves the sound of his own voice. And so does every other character in the book. So you can't disconnect gaudiness from either the book or the film. It's a criticism that just doesn't fly because it's something that runs through the core of both of these readings of the story of Gatsby. Yeah, and I just I just think this movie is is, you know, apart from a few minor things, is incredibly faithful to the book. Mm. And there's so many small details. One thing I like to mention is that like there are lots of very small details that Lerman remembers to include that I really like. For example, the one I love is when you first see Daisy and Jordan in the book there's a sort of description of the room and how all the like curtains are fluttering and it feels very like you know angelic and beautiful and virginal and heavenly and and the way that he does it in the movie is such a good translation of that moment and it seems like a really insignificant thing but I think it's important and and you know he does that so many times yeah and He's, I just, I just love Baz Luhrmann. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just think he's great. He's so good. He was, he was truly the perfect choice for this. And it's, it's even though there's so much to it, and there's so much glitz and glamour, and there's Lana Del Rey on the soundtrack. I don't think there could have been a more faithful adaptation of the book. Like Lana Del Rey is the modern day Daisy Buchanan. Oh my god! I was even th- watching it. I was thinking there's. I couldn't separate those two from each other, even if Lana Del Rey wasn't on the soundtrack. They're so, in terms of vibe and aesthetic, they are exactly on par. If Daisy Buchanan was alive in 2021, she's she'd be singing about daddies all the time. Absolutely, she would. <laughs> I mean, Tom Buchanan's kind of like a daddy, right? Like a like a bad daddy. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm withholding Lada judgment. Lana Del Rey goes for the bad daddies. She does. <laughs> and Tom Buchanan is the ultimate bad daddy. Lana so. Del Rey is our Daisy Buchanan. I'm happy with that. My case is <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we've polished off Gatsby, it's time to reveal the next book and film we'll be covering on the podcast, and it's a big one. Perhaps one of the most controversial book-to-film adaptations in history. Next month, we'll be covering the horror classic and mind-bending masterwork of cinema, and also my favourite horror movie of all time. The legendary Stephen King's 1977 book, The Shining, and its film counterpart by Stanley Kubrick, which released in 1980. King himself notoriously hated this film adaptation he's wrong we'll get into that (laughs) (laughs) so we're looking forward to digging into the hows and whys the book is available in your local bookshop on your e-reader or as an audiobook and you can rent the film on prime video thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the big screen book club keep up to date with us on twitter and instagram at bs book pod i'm joseph kime and i'm clarice larkery and we'll catch you next time thank you Old sport. Old sport. (laughs) We had to get one of them in there. Yeah, it was was only a matter of time. (laughs) 